Benjamin. And uh, thank you, Todd. It's a joy um, for you to bring the word today. Thank you, Nathan. Appreciate it. My pleasure. It was my pleasure uh, to prepare, also my fear to prepare as well. So it's one of those things where um, whenever you... Um, get to share God's word, which I've, I've got to do a couple times here, but at my old church, it was something that uh, was super exciting to me, but also um, something uh, that scared me. Because uh, as always, when you're handling God's word, you want to do so in a biblical fashion, and you don't want to lead people astray. And also, you don't want to reveal to people how little you do know. <laughs> so there's also a little bit of that, right? So um, this morning, um, if you would get out your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, or if you need a pen, um, I think Josh is looking, nope, maybe Kelly, someone over there will come and bring some Bibles and pens to you, so just raise your hand if you need one. Um, yep, just raise your hand if you need a Bible and pen. But while they're, while they're doing that, um, I, I entitled this sermon, Get Out of the Way. And um, before I go into the sermon, before we read God's Word, um, although I wasn't here last week, um, I did listen to Brandon's sermon on Psalm 1, and in it, how he contrasted, you know, kind of the path of righteousness and the path of the wicked, and he reminded us that those who um, delight in God's Word, who meditate on it day and night, um, uh, will live a righteous life. Uh, but those that are wicked will be like chaff. They'll be unable to stand firm, and basically, um, they're worthless, those who are wicked. And so now this morning, we'll be reading Psalm chapter 2. Um, it's often referred to as a royal psalm or a messianic psalm because it refers to the coming Messiah. We'll see it twice here in chapter 2, uh, once in verse 7 and once in verse 9. So we'll dive a little deeper later on to the sermon. But if you would, turn with me to God's word as we, as we read uh, Psalm chapter 2 this morning. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, though, now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as my brothers have prayed for me throughout this morning and Earlier today, um, I pray that I would uh, share your word clearly and concisely and that, um, that indeed people this morning would remember your word and not my words and that they would be transformed and that I would be transformed um, at the preaching of your word. We ask all this in Christ's name. Uh, 
I really want to be fully transparent. I think most people um, who give sermons or give messages or people who want people to understand what they're going through. Um, I've always struggled reading the Psalms. Um, poems never excited me. Shocker. Um, for those, I think that's, I don't think it's necessarily a guy thing, but it was a Todd thing for sure. I still remember writing haikus and limericks in English class, and I hated them. Don't ask me to explain them to you. Thankfully, I've never had to teach my children that, um, but I wasn't good at them. And my haikus, which I think are supposed to be the easiest, were always awful. They're just really bad. Uh, I, I, did, I did not prepare a haiku or limerick for you. Um, uh, and, and I'm just thankful that, that I never had to teach my kids that, and they, the teachers did a great job of that. And so although I know and believe that Scripture is useful, right, for, for me and, and, and for God's people and for my Christian walk, I do think that because of the literary, literary nature of Psalms, um, it's always been a bit confusing to me. I've always, I've always struggled with it. And um, it's not a book I've spent a whole lot of time reading. And if you can relate to this, um, I hope that I can oversimplify this for you and really uh, help you to appreciate the Psalms a little bit more. Because as I was studying this, it, it helped me appreciate the Psalms a little bit more. And um, there's two authors. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of like the, the Bible Project, but there's like Tim Mackey and, and John Collins. Um, they kind of oversimplified it by explaining that the book of Psalms can be broken down into kind of two categories of poems. Poems of lamentations, meaning like, aka deep sorrow, grief or regret, and poems of praise. And so the book of Psalms has been designed as a prayer book for God's people as they await for the arrival of the Messiah and the fulfillment of God's promise. And so I thought those, those words were very helpful to me to understanding what the purpose of the book of Psalms was, how I could understand it. I remember getting lost in the book of Psalms. And so to kind of oversimplify it for me that way really helped me understand what the Psalms purpose was. And, and I hope it was beneficial to you. But if we understand this, we can really really see the value. And so reading through this passage um, will help us to see the problem. It'll help us to see God's plan, but it'll also help us to see the wisdom in choosing to prosper rather than perish. So I do want to clarify, the author is not mentioned in this chapter, in chapter 2, but in the book of Acts in chapter 4, verses 24 through 26, um, that author mentions David as the one who, uh, d- who writes this psalm. And so I think understanding that David is the author in this story, it enables us to see why David asked these questions in the very beginning and why he gives clear warnings to the king later. And so, again, I, I titled this message, um, Get Out of the Way, because I think it's a fitting title that is often what humanity wants, but also what God requires. And so I'll, I'll, I'll explain that a little bit, but I've heard the phrase get out of the way multiple times in my life. And it's, uh, I've used it frequently myself, typically on the interstate. Um, but one particular time stands out for me, and um, I'll apologize now, Jonathan, because I didn't. I meant to ask your permission. He's been working a lot lately. He came home after his job and literally fell to sleep because he got home around 6.30, ate dinner and fell asleep. So I meant to ask this, but I promise this is a story from a long time ago, so it shouldn't embarrass you too much. Um, but uh, I think uh, as a father, it was always a privilege to coach my children when they were younger. 
I realized uh, because of my athletic ability as they got older, I would no longer be their coach, right? But when they were younger, I could teach them some things. And um, like, I don't know, like every father, he says, I'm just going to put them in a sport that they can figure out and it's pretty simple. So we're going to put them in, we're going to put them in soccer. Every little kid, he's, so he's, he's probably five or six years old. It's either my first year or second year of coaching. And just so you know, I have about as much experience as my son at that point coaching soccer. But basically, um, as many of you know, any kind of extracurricular activities, they're just asking for coaches. And so I, I said, sure, I'll YouTube it. I'll look it up. I'll, I'll figure it out, right? How hard can it be? It can be hard. <laughs> you do that, right? It can be very, very uh, challenging. But... What I was trying to explain to my son at the time, because I always thought it was good to use him as the guinea pig. I don't know why. Um, But um, the purpose of the game was to take the soccer ball, right? To dribble around the defenders and and kind of put it in the goal, pass if necessary, right? So I, I thought I did an excellent job of kind of explaining to my son and the rest of the team what happens. Because if any of you have watched Little Kids Soccer, um, you're, if you haven't, you're missing out. It's literally the most enjoyable thing in the world because they all huddle together in a big, you know, ball here and they just kick each other in the ball and just try to, and it's, and then the ball like appears out of nowhere, right? And then they score a goal. But literally there's very little skill and just a whole lot of kicking. That's why they invented shin guards because of little kids. Anyway, that's not part of the story. But anyway, I thought I explained to my, my son, like, I want you to take the ball and I want you to, you know, Dribble around, pass. If somebody comes near you and do it. And so I did a good job. So I blew the whistle, told the kids to go. And immediately all the kids do what kids do. They run at each other, right? And so I figure my son's going to try to pass the ball or do something. But he yells at the top of his lungs, everybody get out of my way. Just like that. Everybody freezes. They, all the kids freeze. They're like, what's going on here? And he's just kind of dribbling around and the kids don't know what to do. So I had to blow the whistle again here. And I said, Son, um, that tactic worked. It surprised me that it worked, but that's not how the game is going to work. It might work the first time, but they, they can get in your way, right? They, they can take the ball from you. I know this would be a whole lot easier if people would just get out of your way, right? And I think in life, oftentimes we think if um, God, if people would just get out of our way, our lives would be so much easier. And so there is the problem. We want to control our lives. And we believe if we get people out of our way, we'll be able to live our best life. We've heard that, right? Live your best life. That is our problem. And that leads us to our first point this morning. And so the short answer is we are the problem or humanity is the problem. Our hearts long for power and control. And we want to dictate what happens in our life And we want to control the lives of others as well. And so as the story of my son is quite hilarious and still makes me chuckle to this day, it is, I believe, our actual hearts that we want people out of our way. And we think we know it's best. And so as we read those first three verses, and I'll read them again, I want you to put that in perspective and put yourself into the story. And so David asks, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And David asks, why do these nations rage? And why are they plotting against the Lord and his anointed? 
Well, the answer is they have become corrupt and prideful. They are corrupt because they want what is evil. They have become to believe that the Lord and his anointed are in the way. And they feel their lives would be better if everyone would just get out of it. So it seems ridiculous that these kings would try to plot against God and against God's chosen one, but here they are plotting away. And so they are doing this because they do not want to submit to this King David, nor do they want to submit to God. And so these nations neither feared nor nor recognized God's authority. From this passage and throughout the scriptures, we can see that humanity chooses to follow their fleshly desire rather than to follow God. The nations want God and his anointed out of the picture so that they can be freed from these perceived bonds. See, sin has a funny thing of telling you God's keeping something from you, right? You're, you're under this in bondage and you're in this slavery and God doesn't want you to have your best life. God doesn't want to have you your joy when in reality our fleshly desires are actually what imprison us. Our sinful nature is actually what ruins our lives. The plotting and the scheming and the planning that we may do or that we see others do may reap temporary benefits, but they have... Um, eternal and everlasting consequences. And so the kings of the earth are preparing for battle. They're working together to fight against this anointed King David, believing defeating the king that they can actually usurp God's plans. They feel enslaved by God and his king and desire to be freed. They despise God and are willing to risk everything. I just, I can't imagine in my mind um, what could be going through their head other than um, we were this morning in, in uh, Sunday school, we were going through the Proverbs and we're, and we're talking about how important it is to have a good friend who would tell you the truth. And I feel like these kings and these nations are getting together and plotting and, and they're spewing this stuff in their heads and they're all believing it. Yeah, we can do it. We are powerful like God doesn't know what he created here. We can take him. We might think these plans are ridiculous. Um, But do we not have the same problem ourselves? Do we not attempt to usurp God at any moment? We are no better, and we are just like these prideful kings. So we've identified this problem. It's us, it's our desire, it's it's our sin. And so the nation's are opposing God and God's chosen king. And now in verses 4 through 9, God reveals his plan very clearly and his response to the problem. So let's read verses 4 through 9 again. It says this, He who sits in the, heaven, in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in, um, in his wrath excuse me, and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree that the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces, 
like a potter's vessel. So what is God's response? What would be an appropriate response from God when nations are attempting to rebel? Should God be afraid? Should God be worried? Should he be shocked? Should he be appalled? God's reaction is priceless. It is perfect. God chooses to laugh. Um, kind of like the closest thing I can picture in my you know, earthly mind um, when um, I used to wrestle with my children and, and I would beat them every time right, in wrestling, because I'm way bigger than them, and they're, you know, they're these little kids. But every time in their minds, we gave, I think Kelly and I gave their kids very good self-esteem, they thought they could beat us every time, right? And I would just laugh in my head. It would bring me such joy as they would come and go, and I would pick them up and slam them down, not on the concrete, there was a bed there, and slam them down and hold them down, and they would feel defeated for that moment. But what would they do? Come back for more. Because may, I think I can take him this time. I think I can take him this time. And the, and the appropriate reaction for me is not to feel, you know, I can't believe my children would, you know, test my strength, but laugh. And so God laughs here at this, and it's appropriate. He isn't threatened by these plans. He finds it quite comical. And so how could a God who is more powerful in every single way feel threatened? He wouldn't. He knows their plans are useless even before They even thought of them. He knew it was coming. It doesn't end there, though. The psalmist writes that these plans have now caused God to become extremely angry. It talks about this derision. And so it says, God will bring sheer terror to those that are in his way. And see, that brings us back kind of to the beginning here. It says, we want everyone, including God, to get out of our way. But God says, no, 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 you will get out of my way. He is the one that has the authority to do that and to say, no, no, this is my plan. He says, I'll bring sheer terror to those that are in his way. And God continues to remind the nations of his plan. He says, telling them, I have set my king. So you guys think you're the kings, but I'm telling you, I am, I have chosen my king. This is God's king and is exactly where God wants him to be. The king reminds everyone that God said something very particular to David. In verse 7, it says, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Not only is this showing the importance of David, it is also foreshadowing the coming Messiah. See, very similar words um, were told to Jesus by God after his baptism in Matthew three seventeen. It talks about, it says, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. So we can see that God's plan all along is redemptive in nature and not punitive. His plan is for us to be blessed and not to perish. See, from the beginning, God had a plan that would allow us to be redeemed. This Old Testament passages reveal not only that humanity continues to attempt to thwart God's plan, but God's plan has never changed. God knows that the Messiah will come through the line of David and that the Messiah will be our perfect king. See, David was their earthly king, but even David knew he could not be the perfect king that the people needed, right? And the prophet Nathan says this to David. This is how David knew this was true. It said, um, the prophet Nathan said this to David in 2 Samuel seven sixteen, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. 
your throne shall be established forever. David knows that it is his bloodline that will bring forth the Messiah. And so on the worst of days, and as you read through these Psalms, uh, pretty much the first half of those Psalms, these Psalms of lament, there, there still is this terror in David's life. He's still fearful at times of the things that are going on, but he also knows the truth that God will use his bloodline to bring forth the coming Messiah. And so up to this point, we see kind of the rulers of the nation's desire to usurp God's authority and all those that he puts in charge. This isn't some small rebellion held by the the lowly people um, of the nation. This rebellion involves multiple nations and it and it involves their kings, and God reminds these nations that the very thing that they want to stop has already taken place. This is quite interesting. They are wanting to stop God's plan from going into action, and they are wanting to stop David from being king. He is king. He's already king. Their plans have already failed, but yet they are trying to do whatever they can to destroy this. And so we see this problem. And we clearly know that God has this plan, but oftentimes what happens? We get involved and we kind of muddy the waters of God's plan. We, we, uh, I, I'll never forget when I first um, became a Christian. Um, I was 15 years old. It was 1996 and where the gospel was clearly explained to me. And, um, and at that point, um, it was so clear that I was a part of God's family, and all God wanted me to do was to share the gift that was given to me. It was a very simple plan in my life. But yet, at every opportunity, I would mess that up as a kid. Whether I was afraid to share about my faith because of what my friends thought, or whether um, I wasn't sure of the proper teaching, or didn't think I had enough knowledge. But something as simple as, you know, when you become a Christian, it was very clear that I have been transformed, that I've been changed, and my job now is just to share God's word with people who are willing to listen, right? Like, it's that easy, but yet God's plan for my life, um, I often muddied it up. I often screwed it up. And I'm so thankful that God has continually been gracious to me and um, to all of us, that even as we muddy the waters, God remains faithful to us. And, and that is also a part of his plan. And so, we see our problem. It's us. We see God's plan, which is to bring forth um, David as the king, to bring forth the Messiah so that one day we can be saved, um, that one day um, Christ could save us. Um, and says, so we've seen this problem. Clearly know God's plan. Now we must make a decision to perish or prosper. Okay. So let's take a, verse, um, let's take a look at verses 10 through 12 again. It says this. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. The psalmist is calling the kings to show a characteristic up to this point that they have been unable to demonstrate. The psalmist desires the kings to show wisdom. These kings are used used to being in charge. They're used to calling the shots. They're used to telling people what to do. But now they are warned to be careful. 
They're warned to pay attention and they need to carefully weigh out their options and are being called to make a choice. See, the psalmist reminds the kings to serve the Lord with fear and trembling. These rulers are being required to show reverence and and understanding if they want to prosper. Now, Now, they know that to serve God means to accept the king's authority. Literally, by kissing the son, it was a, um, a very humbling way of saying, you as the king, you are in charge. You know, the kissing of the ring, or it's like the, you know, showing reverence by bowing down is, you will show that you, you're the king, that all other kings are less than King David, and ultimately less than God. And so it seems like a no-brainer. It seems like how hard would it be, but pride is a funny thing. And so their choice is to prosper by taking refuge or to to be blessed by taking refuge or continue to stand in the way of God and his anointed. And what will happen to them? They will perish. See, to me, this seems like a no-brainer. Why would anyone stand in the way of God? Um, Although I feel like for at least 15 years of my life, that's what I did, constantly stood in the way of God, not even understanding it. But these kings have allowed their own arrogance to mislead them into thinking they are the authority and that they have the real power. I can think of many times in my young life and even as life as a Christian, how I stood in the way of God and tried to manipulate the outcome or control the situation that I could somehow use God. I believed I was the master rather than the creation. I was in charge of my destiny and I was unwilling to acknowledge God as my Lord. See, I knew that I needed a savior, but it was hard to say, Lord, I need a Lord, right? It can be obvious to some of us that we need to be rescued. But our culture, our way of life, we don't want to be subservient to anyone. We don't want to bow down to our God. So they must show honor to King David, but ultimately because of these messianic um, implications of Psalm 2, 12 are clear. It's not God who's being honored with a kiss, but God's son. See, Jesus is God's son and anyone who wants to come to God must show allegiance to his son. Jesus is God's son and anyone who wants to come to God, like I said, must show his allegiance. So John 14, 6 says this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. It was the one verse that clarified to me that no other religions, no other religions were right. That Jesus was very exclusive here. He was very particular. And it helped me to understand right here uh, as, a young, as, a, as a young believer that the only way to God was through Christ. Couldn't have spelled it out any clearer for me. And it also... These nations need to recognize that the faith in God's son is the only way to receive everlasting life. And so like that warning that he says, you can either get in the way and perish or you can take refuge. John 3.18 says this, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not, um, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So as I wrap up here this, this morning, we, we can recognize our problems that can be very simple. We can see God's plan for our lives. But now we need to decide if we want to enjoy the prosperity that he gives to those who take refuge in him. Or 
and that the passage brings hope to those who desire to follow Christ, but these same words will serve as a warning to those who do not want to follow what verse 12 requires, which is to submit by kissing to the Son. Those who are unwilling will face the wrath of God. Uh, There was a, and the name has slipped me, there was a famous atheist, atheist magician who talked um, uh, to Christians quite often. He wasn't antagonist, um, but his point about Christianity was this. He's recorded telling this story. He says, if Christianity is true, then I, I expect the believers of that religion to act like it. And he uses the, the story like this. Um, if your best friend was on the train tracks and didn't know that a train was coming and you hear the train coming and you went up to your best friend and said, hey, you need to get off the train tracks. You need to warn them and tell them, hey, he's like, what do you mean? He's there's a train coming. It's going to kill you. You need to get off the train tracks. And if that friend still refuses, you would plead with that friend, you know, you need to get off the train tracks. You are going to be killed by this train. And at some point, a good friend would be willing to risk their own lives would be willing to push the point to say, I'm going to remove you, physically remove you, because I believe in this so strongly. And so my challenge to you this morning, and I think the challenge from this passage is, are you going to get out of God's way and take refuge in him? Are you going to be, are you going to help others to see that they need to get out of God's way? Sorry. Um, And to follow him. And I think that atheist has a good point. Do we believe what we say we do? If we do, we will have a strong conviction to help people at any cost. That doesn't mean to sit there and beat them over the head with God's word, but it means to tell them the truth. It means to care about them. It means to do whatever you can to look out for them. And so I pray that you would help those in this community that don't even need, that don't even think they need that kind of help. Let's go to, let's uh, close in prayer. Father God, we've read your word this morning and we can easily see the problem is our sinful desire to serve our needs and to place ourselves above you, God. Your plan is clearly laid out before us, but we honestly, we struggle, God, to follow you. We desire to take the lead and we constantly get in our own way. Help us to see our blind spot, God. Help us to stand firm in our faith. God, I desire that all would turn to you this very day, that all would submit to your son, Jesus Christ, that all would recognize him as the true king and live out what verse 12 commands. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.